0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fuga-A to Fuga-Z. Joining me today to discuss Guilford Fall from 1998's End Hits is Brian Schill, the author of The Year's Work in the Punk Bookshelf, or Lusty Scripts. That's Scripts. The story of the books punks read and why they read them. Welcome to the show, Brian. How are you doing?
1: Uh, you know I'm doing okay, Ian. Thank you so much uh, for letting me uh, be a part of this experience. Uh, it's it's you know it's I'm very honored. And I was as I was saying off mic, just uh, I'm coming to you from North Dakota here. We're just uh, just trying to get by, not <laughs> not getting sick, uh, given that the the virus is pretty pretty rampant up here.
0: Yeah. Um, well. Uh, good luck with that, and um, let's let's hang in there. Hope we get uh, mm-hmm. rescued by modern medicine. Um, man, if they pull that off, people really uh, change their tunes about uh, quote unquote big pharma. I think, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, exactly. It's all negative about those guys until we need a vaccine for something like this.
1: Yeah. And that's so it's interesting you mentioned that I, I, I work at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine up here, the only med school in the state. Um, so I'm, I'm in a med school and I'm dealing with a lot of those uh, those researchers and physicians all the time working on that stuff. And we got people researching covid and uh, and it's all incredibly interesting. And you're right. A lot of the you know, for better or worse, a lot of the research that they do is, is financed not just by the NIH or whatever, uh, CDC, but but some of those private firms, too. And it's it can be on occasion somewhat productive.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah. Um keep up the good work, tell your colleagues <laughs> to keep plugging away. And uh, yeah, we'll, we will pull for a cure. Anyway, so this book is intriguing. Uh, can you tell me about it? Uh, what's, what's the concept and um, what can readers find therein?
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, so very generally, I um... I think the the context or the background is i noticed, and I think I'm sure you had too. Um, there there seemed to be this stereotype about punk rockers, I mean, particularly in maybe the '70s and '80s. Uh, it's you know you and I are past that. Much of the world is past the stereotype that they it's just kind of dumb, right? I mean, the genre itself, the musicians. You had Joey Ramone singing, you know, on the Pinhead. You had Kurt Cobain saying. Uh, you know, I am dumb. Uh, that song from there, from In Utero and so on. There was a stereotype, especially amongst uh, the sort of uh, professional class or the uh, a certain certain class of people, that this music that was not professional, etc., was just not very smart. And I, you know, you can find all kinds of critiques of early punk rocks, and these guys are clearly idiots. They've probably never read a book, etc. Um, you and I know that's not true. And in, in fact, the uh, the reverse is. is is quite true insofar as a lot of the folks participating in this subculture, punk and post-punk, are very well-read, very literate, and in fact, you can find all kinds of references to literature, to philosophy, to poets, to you know, playwrights, and so on, in these songs, in their uh, in the liner notes, and so on. Um, you know, across time and space, all these different scenes. And I just uh, thought it would be an interesting thing. A project to try to do is to sort of tackle all that, right, to bring it together and see what is the sort of literary history if you will, of punk and post punk from even say Velvet Underground, up until as soon as the and whenever the book was published, twenty seventeen. Um and so there's a series of chapters on all that stuff on punk and philosophy, punk and poetry, punk and theater, uh punk on Henry Miller, and there's a lot of references among some bands and Uh, Dostoevsky stuff like that just kind of teasing that all out and trying to figure out what's the significance why these authors but not these why these particular uh, philosophical traditions and not others and what what that all means so
0: are there any um, particular findings uh, you'd like to uh, make note
1: of the yeah the, the I think the ultimate or the eventual thesis of the of the thing is that um, a lot of the books and or authors and or uh, types of writing that seems to attract uh, these again these punkers uh, post punk folks or fans or producers of that culture across time and place is um, stuff that's sort of self consciously um, preoccupied with shame if you will um, and so uh, you have again. The Iggy Pops and uh, um, you know the the groups in the West Coast where, where you're at right East Bay. I'm thinking, um, uh, gosh, I'm I'm losing. Tra- I mean the, the Black Flag. I mean those sorts of things. A lot of the uh, ha- are very interested in books or authors that sort of draw attention to how sort of degraded. Uh, the subject is right. The subject mm-hmm. being the, the punk rocker, him or herself, um, and so that's why Henry Rollins is, for example, reading uh, Henry Miller, you know, on stage, you know, as early as whatever it is '85 or something like that, and and you see that sort of theme again throughout with these punkers um, referencing Kafka and Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, as I already said. Um, and I guess, I mean, there's other authors along the way, too. I don't want to go into too much detail uh, and bore your listeners. But um, yeah, that sort of uh, shame uh, as a sort of expression of, you know, we, we are um, just not particularly happy with the state of the world. We think the state of the world, uh, be it capitalism or the church or the government or whatever has sort of done this to us, uh, has sort of turned us into these sort of ashamed sort of creature so the punkers embody that shame and they're interested in literature and authors that sort of uh sort of express that in writing as well Hmm. that's very interesting i i wonder if this will come up with the song that we're discussing today Hmm. (laughs) i think it might Um,
0: before we do that though do you want to tell me a little bit about your relationship with fugazi in general and do you remember how you first got into them and so on
1: I do, yeah, so I think as we, uh, you might have heard from other authors as well, this isn't anything new, but, or other guests of your show, excuse me, um, growing up in North Dakota, there, um, in the you know, 80s and 90s, there wasn't a ton of internet, there wasn't a lot of uh, this sort of culture up here, we ha- kind of had to make it ourselves, and uh, it wasn't on the radio, obviously, so we didn't hear of it that way. Um, but I was at, you know, I was with a bunch of buddies in 91 or so. I was maybe 14 years old. We, um, were just hanging out playing Nintendo as you know, kids do. And, uh, one of our, one of the friends, one of the guys, a guy named Jason, good friend of mine still brought over, uh, these cassette tapes by all these bands I'd never heard of. And I think that included mud honey and included, um, the red hot chili peppers again, better or worse. And then this band called Fugazi. Um, and I'd heard Nirvana that was on the radio and so on. But, um, I wasn't totally into the grunge thing for a number of reasons, but we were playing through these tapes, and this um, this one by Fugazi, and I'm pretty sure it was Repeater. Um, it just struck me for whatever reason. It was something I'd, I'd never heard before, and I was sort of, again, almost dumbfounded. Like I didn't I didn't know you could do that kind of thing. You could make those sounds um, and you know, get on the radio or make a cassette tape or whatever. Um, and it struck me with me. So you know, buddies are off playing their Nintendo or whatever. I must have listened to that Repeater record probably two or three times straight. Uh, I was just so sort of. Uh, uh, obsessed with it instantly just caught up in the way it sounded um, and it you know there was basically no looking back so you know bought a bunch of tapes uh, CDs um, and it, I mean the rest is history I saw saw the band several times and would travel around to see them and uh, we were discussing the book you know so far as I went to reach out to Ian Mackay and, and other other folks in the discord scene to try to get their views on the, the literary history of punk and what they had to say about it and, um, and here we are
0: any any interesting so, tidbits you can tell us uh, from those guys uh, or Ian in general, or, yeah, or Ian in particular I, I, about his literary tastes?
1: Yeah, his. Um, so I I would. I'm a bit surprised. I was I was. Uh, sh- not shocked, but surprised at some of his responses uh, to the the literature, of the books he was into, and maybe I shouldn't have been. But um, the conversation might lead us into into the song. Uh, in any case, uh, Guilford Fall that is. But uh, Ian mentioned he was interested in, uh, as a kid at least, C. S. Lewis. Um, I know he mentioned, I think, Kurt Vonnegut, and maybe that's not a surprise. Um, he had expressed some interest in James Baldwin, and he also mentioned uh, Ringo Levio, a book by Emmett Grogan, who was an old sort of, you know anarcho-socialist uh, hangout with abby hoffman kind of the theater uh theater guy travel the world and so on um his uh maybe this is not this is common knowledge too but um ian's grandparents i think on the f- paternal side were both writers right so his his uh his mother or his grandmother wrote for the Ladies Home Journal, and his grandfather did some writing as well for the Saturday Evening Post, um, and did, you know, some other, maybe it's crime fiction or something, and so that literary culture was part of um, Ian's upbringing, and you may recall too, I think he says in an interview somewhere, um, maybe it's with Punk Planet, that his dad, right, was a writer for the Washington Post, I want to say, and so that, that culture was sort of Ian and his family, his siblings, were steeped in that uh, literary culture. They were reading all the time, um, and that just made its way into, um, I guess, the, the punk scene, the Discord scene in particular that he founded with some with some friends, and um, and so. He told me the story then, just to expand a bit on that, that um, Guilford Fall as a song title, um, and we can get into what that may or may not mean, but I'm sure many of us have seen uh, Guilford, Connecticut in the liner notes for those Fugazi records, and that's because the band would travel up to Guilford uh, where Ian's grandparents were, and he used to say they would practice up in that old house, I think, after the grandparents had passed away, and that house was just filled with books. There were bookshelves everywhere. And so a number of the um, song titles that the band would sort of apply to these draft songs were just book titles they saw on the shelves right and one of them included um this uh biography of ew Scripps, the journalist uh, and that's where the term and the name of that book was lusty Scripps," and that's where then that song title came from and it just for whatever reason it stuck around they didn't ever change it and that ended up being a demo you know anyway i don't think it was it uh, wasn't an official song right
0: i had never heard and that so, that's interesting okay
1: yeah and exactly and so that and so that event of taking that, say, Lusty Scripts title and some other song titles, too, occurred up in Guilford, Connecticut, which, again, might be connected to the song in question today.
0: Yeah, I had assumed that almost certainly this had been a working title of some musical piece they were working on that, that simply stuck around after lyrics were written, and they don't have anything necessarily to do with the lyrics, but maybe it was on a a demo tape that was just labeled guilford fall because it was recorded in the fall at guilford house right exactly Uh, this is my assumption the uh the demo version on the instrument soundtrack i noticed was actually recorded at broad branch road which by the Mm. way is is parents house um Ah. so there's a lot of they really keep it in the family as far as fugazian practice spaces and recording spaces Uh, sure so yeah the demo was recorded there so so i assume that guilford is fall is from just some kind of practice sort of thing, like the kind of thing that, uh, that you hear snippets of in, in red medicine, right? It's like that, that's what I envision at least.
1: Yeah. No, that's my assumption as well. We didn't get into this song in particular when Ian and I talked, but I'm I'm assuming the same as you.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's those comments on the title are, are just about all that I had by way of introduction Um, and yeah the demo version is is something that I think we can discuss too Um, if people have seen the the documentary instrument the demo version is what plays over there's this footage of of a 1990 anti-apartheid benefit show at St. Augustine School in DC so um, other than those intro remarks uh, I do like to to give it to you Brian as my guest what's the first thing you want to talk about when it comes to this song Uh, any any aspect of the music or lyrics or whatever
1: well i guess sort of broadening the scope a bit I, I just you know what's really impressed me about this band and the reason i've stuck with them even into my you know my 40s or whatever is I, it seems that well let me back up so there's that insert in the end hits uh line or notes right where there's that sort of committed commitment to excellence or committed to excellence um sort of screenshot or that uh, that piece of art they have there right and i and I like that insofar as I, I opened that up and it struck me as incredibly true and something to, you know, strive for in my own life. But with that record in particular i thought yeah it's true and then i listened to it and i heard the songs and even before seeing that particular liner note i'd always i'd recognize the way in which this band continually tries to uh raise the bar right tries to one-up themselves with every record from say steady diet to you know the kill taker to red medicine to end hits it seems like they're constantly trying to build something bigger and more impressive or just um uh you know, I don't know what the word is, but just something that's, um, that they can be incredibly proud of. And they accomplished that. And they were committed to providing an excellent product, if you will, um, every time. And so, and I think that's, and I'm sure Ian would, you know, hate for me to use that term, but that's, I see them doing that and i see them going in that direction on this record as well and it sort of peaks if you will um throughout the course of this album and hits with that song guilford fall which for me is sort of a zenith not that the other songs after that aren't as good but just the the way that album builds and builds and builds and gets to this this track which i do think musically uh lyrically it's just incredibly intricate and uh, nuanced and very well done um it, you know, very quickly, I just say, I got a, I got a friend who sort of reads this the wrong, not the wrong way, a different way than I do. And he says, uh, when End Hits came out, we had a conversation and he was frustrated by it. He said, they're just like, they're too good. The band just got too good. <laughs> and, and he was not, he was getting less interested in Fugazi as a result of, I guess maybe he wanted things that seemed more spontaneous, dingier, punkier, whatever. Um, and this is sort of the, the, the point at which the band, it was clear like they are. An exceptional band as a group of writers and musicians not that again that wasn't true in red medicine or something but um you can i think it really is evident at the end hit stage
0: yeah you're not the first person to bring up that committed to excellence thing in the in the liner notes of end hits it's funny i i would think that like the impression that i get is is the sort of thing that you would put in liner notes like in a tongue-in-cheek way like ironically yeah that committed to excellence thing, I don't know where it came from. I would imagine it is, it's is—it's like a slogan that a service team would use, it, it like, you know, it, right. Toyota customer service team, committed to excellence. It's the, like the kind sure. of motivational slogan that would be up on the wall or something like that. And they just kind of thought it was funny and put it in there. But I think, I'll like... I like you, like me, and a lot of listeners. I believe take that at face value, and and we're like, well, as it turns out, that I, we think that totally applies to you guys. So, so cheers.
1: Yeah, uh, I agree. Tongue in cheek, but it's absolutely true at the same time. Yeah,
0: yeah. Anything in particular that you think is is excellent about this song?
1: Sure. I so you mentioned the demo from from the instrument, um, like a soundtrack, and I think it's interesting to compare those two. Um, the what's missing from the end hits version of that record is that sort of long ascending introduction, right? Um, where the, the drum and the guitar just goes higher and higher up the neck. And, um, so they they dispensed with that, and I think that was the right choice, because listening to both side by side, that intro part that was in the end, I'm sorry, the instrument version of that that song, the demos version, I don't know that it adds anything to the song, and in fact, the way the end hits version just, again, from a musical point of view, just sort of kicks you off, uh, kicks off itself into that, um, the, the riff, it's just really good, and again, particularly when there's that Gosh, there must be a wah pedal in there, right? A wah yeah. wah sort of, uh, sort of streaming the, the guitar, and um, yeah, it's musically speaking, if that's where we want to start. I noticed that difference between the two versions, and this. And hits version, I think, is just—it sounds so good, right? That sort of Don's entire production, the drums, the guitars, everything about it is crisp, it's clean, and it's again far more complicated musically speaking than I think the band often gets credit for. And it's just, for me, it's—it's um, I mean, it's really impressive.
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty cool thing to examine. Which is, if you if you just listen to the demo version on instrument, um, it is. I mean that's a great example of how you can do a really effective and fun to listen to groove with one chord, which is all it is, right? right. It's like, and it's it sort of mm. rides on that, and it ju- it just keeps it going, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's great to listen to and it's enjoyable. This it it seems more musically complicated, but it, in a way it isn't. I think. Um, Mm -hmm. little, little sounds and things are added to that main riff. I mean, if we're just talking about that riff, um, but it's basically the same. It's just like sort of one chord and then little squeals and things are being added to it. And you're right. Certainly there's, there's a wah pedal all over this. That's, that's the thing that I pointed out in the arpeggiator episode. I am pretty sure in that there's a part where a wah pedal is employed um, but mm. in this one, it's like, there's no doubt. It's like, it's, right. it's whying like in a funky way all over that sort of intro riff. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, so that's, uh, but aside from the um, adornments, it is that sort of simple one chord thing and that continues through like the first stanza of the lyrics like there's a lead guitar but that's just sort of playing one note and, then, and that keeps going mm-hmm. and then finally in the second stanza there's this more involved like surfy lead that starts happening yeah um, exactly but, but yeah for me it's a great um it's a great example of uh how you can do a lot w- with a little if you are a tight band mm-hmm. uh with a good rhythm section and yeah
1: Exactly. And that's sort of, that's, I think what I'm getting at too is despite that sort of main riff of the, the the verses, right? You have the introduction with the wah and then the the sort of continually building, I don't know if it's overdubbing or whatever, but with uh, the second and third guitars and so on and what the drums are doing. And there's the chunka chunka chunk of stuff that Ian's always doing. Uh, like when you put it all together, I think it's, it's far, it's, it's complicated, right? It doesn't sound like it in the verses part and up front it's not, but I mean, I think you're right. Um, it's it's more intricate than it seems, um, and they did so by, uh, t- to your point, with not not that much going on uh, technically, quote unquote, and also by cutting the song down. Right, you got, got rid of that intro from the demo, and it's actually a stronger, tighter song as as a result.
0: Yeah, to me, it's there's there's an interesting spectrum I've I've come to learn more and more over the years between um, complexity of musical content and complexity of sounds, like. If if you're like people playing jazz guitar, for example, there are tons of chords and every chord has like at least four notes in it. There are all these like seventh chords, ninth chords, extended, you know, 13 chords, blah, blah, blah. And, but the, the sound they use in playing that is, is a little bit muffled and dark and they never use distortion because that, that would be too much complexity. Right. Whereas Mm -hmm. in, in, the situation that this song presents—they um, keep the music very simple, but the the different sort of timbres and little interesting adornment sounds going on can be quite uh, multivarious and and complex, and that that's what makes the song interesting.
1: Right, agree. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. There's some there's some nice little musical moments here, though. That said, that's it's a cool like little. When the song gets quiet the little descending uh riff with like sort of one one droning note and one descending um like uh like high note uh happening on the guitar that's a Mm -hmm. that's a particularly nice part um interesting that there's there's an interesting siren like sound that happens near the end uh yeah
1: i noticed (laughs) yeah i don't know what that's all about (laughs) but maybe maybe it's an emergency, which we can get to lyrically speaking, uh, <laughs> yeah sure, <laughs> so
0: it certainly adds tension, but, like that's yeah. that's one thing about the sirens and siren like sounds it's um it's the opposite of relaxing that's uh, yeah. that much you can certainly say
1: well there's maybe you've seen it too there's uh you know a thousand YouTube clips, but there's someone who did tried to do the the tablature just sort of. Run through the song uh, on guitar, so it's just a split screen of someone, whoever it is, playing both guitar parts and then sort of put together simultaneously. And again, it's uh, the one guitar does seem incredibly simple, and the other one, there's a bunch of goofy stuff going on. Um, and it's uh, you know nothing I could do, um, and so it's it's I think it's deceptively simple, but it's 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 quite an interesting uh, tr- track musically speaking.
0: Yeah, I did see uh, that that video came across mm. my. Uh, yeah, in my search but I didn't actually click and, and watch it So mm. perhaps I should um, I think it's the same I think he does like a ton of those right this this one guy who has done a bunch of guitar playthroughs of Fugazi songs
1: oh okay um, I'll I have to th- check him
0: out Yeah, I, I think so I've noticed that sort of thing come up and I keep ignoring it um, but I shouldn't this guy's put a lot of work into it clearly
1: <laughs> that's right well don't feel obligated to watch somebody's youtube video <laughs>
0: but <laughs> usually i don't but i mean right i like now i'm in firmly in the business of of um fugazi obsessiveness so i <laughs> might as well yeah. <laughs> um well yeah i mean you mentioned the lyrics
1: where do you think we should start in that regard the yeah i don't um really anywhere um <laughs> I don't know, maybe we start with the question marks. Uh, the question marks for me are that um, it's kind of a bridge near the end where things are a little little quieter and, and Guy is sort of, seems to be spelling out something, right? Yes. Um, and I have no idea what that is. I've listened and listened, tried and tried. I've listened to other people do covers and they try it. And I'm not sure what's going on there, what is being spelled, if anything. And so I was curious what, to be honest, what you had to say or if you had any sense of what that was.
0: Yeah, so there are two sections like that right mm-hmm. um right. It, it sounds to me first of all as if in the first one it's joe it sounds to me like joe mm. um i don't i don't know if okay. it struck you that way and i i am not sure but that's what it sounds like to me mm. um and then in the second one it's joe and gee uh like doing it at the same time um mm. this is how it yeah this is how it strikes my ear at least and as far as what they're actually saying I. One of the things, first of all, it's it's low in the mix, so it's a little hard to make out. Also, yeah. it's it's multiple voices, and they have, like, echo on them, right? So mm-hmm. even if you understand the letters that they're saying, it, like, putting them in the correct order <laughs> is is very hard. So, yeah, I, I have had a, a difficult time, too. I will say, in the second section, there is a part where definitely the word appetite is spelled out. Mm, um, okay. I think there, there are some letters before that, but then uh, appetite happens. And I, I think whatever the letters are that come before that are, I think, the same ones said in the first section, which I still can't make out, and I don't think appetite yeah. is spelled out there. So, yeah, that's also a big question mark for me. Uh, I, I'm afraid okay. I don't have an answer, and I would like to uh, ask the Fugazi guys if I ever get a
1: chance. Yeah. Well, I, don't, I don't think... You know, I've seen the group a few times, and I don't recall seeing... It this song played live. And so I didn't know if either Fugazi live series or any videos if you'd seen, uh, you know, seen the song and just watched their mouths or whatever to get a sense of what they're, what they might be saying. So Uh, in
0: fact, on that front, uh, this, according to my research, this is the least played song from end hits. Wow. Um, I believe it was 32 uh, outings um, in terms of the set of data I had analyzed, which is, I think they're, always adding to the uh, Fugazi live series content, so maybe there's more, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like this is actually the least played one. And, yeah, whenever uh, whenever I come across uh, a stat like that, I, I sort of wonder why, you know, why didn't they play right. this as much as the other ones? I think, uh, so I have, I just recorded the episode, or um, I just released the episode on Foreman's Dog as we're speaking, and... Mm-hmm. In, in that one, I noted that, like, there's a part in that song where Guy is supposed to sing and play this lead part at the same time. It seems pretty hard, and he actually sort of, like, stops singing at, one, at a point that I've mm. seen in, like, live videos where he's supposed to be, like, singing and playing at the same time. So maybe it was just a, you know a matter of it being difficult to execute live and uh foreman's dog is also pretty rarely played so yeah maybe maybe it's that sort of thing that's also happening on guilford fall sure uh it's my best guess um so yeah i All all of which is to say i yeah not many people have seen this played live
1: yeah, I'm I'm kind of shocked to hear that again because um, I, I, which your sort of uh, instinct might be correct there. Maybe it is just a tricky one to do, to do live. But it's it's I'm surprised at that uh, fact that it's not played live much because it does seem like something that would really, sort of be engaging for an audience and kind of be it's quick. It's you know it's it's uh, there's a lot going on and it's um, kind of you know it's quiet. It's loud. It can throw down. It can be yeah. you know whatever. It's like it'd be a good live song is what I'm getting at. And but it's it hasn't been apparently.
0: Maybe they just uh, could never remember the letters. They were like, ah, <laughs> "What are the letters again?" Ah, That's it. right.
1: Uh, Tiny Tim—is that what they're saying? I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, i I thought I had, um, I thought I had made out the the word "tiny" somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, I <laughs> I think we're dancing around it, but I'm not quite sure. Maybe even little, uh, like those the words. The letters l t m and i seem to come up a lot,
1: yeah, uh, I think so too, whatever they are and and for me, yeah, maybe you said this, but why I feel like I hear the letter y all the yeah. time, but
0: well anyway uh it's yeah, you could definitely drive yourself crazy trying to figure that out listeners um do a little uh do a little detective work, see if you can make out what they're saying and Comment in the thread when I when I post this on uh, on the Facebook group, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, would like to hear your opinion.
1: That's the reason the internet was invented, by the way. It's just to help to crowdsource this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, but uh, but yeah, the the fact that you can make out "appetite" being spelled at least the second time around uh, that certainly resonates with the rest of the song. Um, so mm-hmm. I I don't think that's a coincidence at all. It seems to be a song that talks about uh, eating or more uh, more accurately, not eating, right?
1: For me, I mean, we don't need to go through the lyrics word for word, but this strikes me every time I hear it as, I think a pretty well-justified conversation uh, critique um being leveled at uh, liberals for sure and maybe even leftists that's that's what i hear um and so i'm trying to figure out why would that be and putting the song in context you know it's 1998 or 97 when it was being written maybe um we're about five six years uh, of the way through uh the clinton administration right and what's going on in dc there and i'm trying to figure out like what's what's he getting at here um and my sense is if you're if you're a progressive uh Politically, politically speaking. Um, you know, it's we've had the second term of this Democrat and and what is it what has it gotten us? And I don't know if he's thinking crime bill stuff or a Telecommunications Act of ninety six, right, which has sort of paved the way for the five corporations. You know, Ian sings about earlier in the record, uh welfare reform, quote unquote reform, NAFTA, all that stuff. Like this is this is from a progressive allegedly, a liberal president. Um and if you're anywhere on the left, I mean you must he must have been kind of horrified right at what was coming out um as far as what counted as quote left-leaning policy um and that's i mean i'm wondering if that's what guy's thinking and he's saying look he's looking at um this the status of the country and the policy that's being passed again by quote democrats in control and he's like man you, you how can you guys be satisfied with this right um uh, there's there's all kinds of great policy on your plate for you to eat, and you're just letting it go bad, <laughs> right? Um, and instead, you get this—you're somehow satisfied with this basically center-right policy. Uh, all this stuff again, NAFTA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And he seems he seems to be speaking to that um, in a way that's a, again a criticism of of liberal liberal thinking.
0: That's a very interesting take that I had not considered. Hmm. Well done.
1: Uh, <laughs> i appreciate that well what was your take or feel I, free to you know, take that any direction i you know
0: i was considering the metaphorical possibilities here but i think i i had really failed to to reach a a coherent theory on like on what this could mean other than um than simply talking about uh f- maybe food literally but also just you know the the pleasures of the flesh and um it seems to me to be a critique of asceticism um to use a word that is actually uh, used in the song um it's sort of an like almost an anti five corporations in a way you know a song that is a critique of of consumption at least you know by uh by uh the, uh, the octopus arms of corporations, whereas this song is a critique of not consuming enough. Um, and um, so there's, um, I do have a little inside information on this. So Guy Pechotto passed sure. this little tidbit of information on to a friend of the show, Jared Coffin. Quote, I can't remember what specifically spurred me to write it, but in that song I was working through something about self-defeating, self-punishing, self-erasing behavior, like an anorexia of the spirit. Mm-hmm. End quote. Mm. Um, so like this fasting, this anorexia, there's, there's a lot of metaphorical possibilities there. Yeah, I guess you could take it in a lot of different ways, but I think there are two sides to uh, a spectrum, and at either extreme... Uh, either extreme can be harmful really. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's an instinct in a lot of people to deny themselves certain pleasures out of a, um, out of a desire to, to, to like, to master yourself in a way to prove to yourself that you are, um, strong and you have strength of will. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like anything that can be taken to harmful extremes, which seems to me to be in general what the song is talking about. One thing specifically is, I mean, so it uses the word, uh, Guy uses the word ascetic, which certainly brings to mind connotations about religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are so many religions where asceticism plays some kind of a role in the world, right? I mean, you know, in Christianity, um, there's there are traditions of fasting. You know, John the Baptist was an ascetic uh, even you know Jesus Christ himself, uh, at at times, um, you know in Islam, Muhammad uh, w- had like this uh, these ascetic habits. Of course, you know there's fasting during Ramadan, etc. Um, but I think the the religion that most resonates, probably because G also uses the word mantra, is Buddhism. It did bring this to mind. Have you ever heard of Buddhist mummies who? make themselves into mummies.
1: No, I've never heard that. I do want to, I, I want to say he had uh, he has that eight spoked path, eight, you know, wheel tattoo. On, did, doesn't he? Or didn't he on his shoulder? He, he does, the, but he has yeah. said
0: that actually doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism. It's, it's, oh. it's a reference to a rites of spring song. Hmm. Um, there you go. But yeah, let me, let me just read a little bit from, uh, some relevant quotes on Wikipedia, because I think this is so super fascinating. So, uh, The Japanese word Sokushinbutsu is a kind of Buddhist mummy. It refers to the practice of Buddhist monks observing asceticism to the point of death and entering mummification while alive. Um, They uh, are likely inspired by the founder of Shingon Buddhism, who ended his life by reducing and then stopping intake of food and water while continuing to meditate and chant Buddhist mantras. In medieval Japan, this tradition developed a process for Sokushinbutsu, which a monk completed over about 3,000 days. It involved a strict diet called mokujiki, literally eating a tree. The diet abstained from any cereals and relied on pine needles, resins, and seeds found in the mountains, which would eliminate all fat in the body. Increasing Mm -hmm. rates of fasting and meditation would lead to starvation. The monks would slowly reduce, then stop liquid intake, thus dehydrating the body and shrinking all organs the monks would die in a state of meditation while chanting a mantra about Buddha, and their body would become naturally preserved as a mummy with skin and teeth intact without decay and without the need of any artificial preservatives. Many of these mummies have been found in northern Japan and estimated to be centuries old, while texts suggest that hundreds of these cases are buried in the mountains of Japan. So, uh, that's pretty crazy, right?
1: That's incredible.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, you... the more famous stories of of like self immolation, um, you know, like the uh, like the famous uh, Vietnam War protest, mm-hmm. um, it almost pales in comparison to that as a show of strength of will.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's,
0: it's very hard to imagine anybody uh, being, yeah, uh, having the mental fortitude to do such a thing. And yeah. I, it's horrifying also.
1: <laughs> right. Wow. Well, so this is all interesting and you have my brain going <clears throat> in a different direction now. And so, you know, we just got done with an election year and all that stuff in Fugazi, DC quote unquote political band. So my, my, I wanted to go in that direction right away, but when you describe the sort of asceticism of self stuff, it has me thinking, too, back to the literary angle we discussed before. I'm thinking of Kafka. I'm thinking of A Hunger Artist, a mm-hmm. short story, um, and there might be some element of that going on there. Um, I'm also thinking, though, too, <clears throat> I don't know if you read the uh, uh, the Tales of a Punk Rock Nothing novel, the Himmelstein and Schwesser book. No, uh, I didn't. From... Yeah, it's from, I don't remember how many years ago, but it's kind of, it's a fictional sort of pastiche, you know, it's it's a zine, it's it's a diary entry, it's nonfiction, it's a narrative, whatever. But it's a riff on the Washington, D.C. scene, in fact, and there's all these, you know, pseudonyms for, obviously, this person's Ian McKay, and obviously, this person is whomever, maybe uh, uh, someone from, uh, Kathleen Hanna, I don't know, um, but it's a really interesting uh, piece of fiction uh, in that what it ends up doing is it kind of takes the dc scene to task in a way in that it tries to uh, dramatize the ways in which uh who you know who's a vegan who's not a vegan who's lefter than thou, who's got to this or that who's more woke than who in this punk house or that punk house and within the discord scene and so on like it really kind of shows the uh, sort of, I don't want to say the ugly, ugly underside of that, but it just really paints it in a way that makes it look like there's a lot of folks in this scene, maybe not at discord who are trying to sort of out, you know, out left the other or out whatever the other to the point of their sort of, as this song maybe is suggesting, um, their, their veganism, their asceticism, their whatever political uh, sort of thought and action is, um, self-defeating in a way right or it it becomes performative if you will like a hunger artist um and now i'm thinking of that book so
0: (laughs) and yeah let's let's not forget the fact that fugazi had an album titled steady diet of nothing
1: that's right exactly
0: (laughs) seems like this song might be appropriate on it thematically um but but yeah that's it's one of those things where like a legend has grown up around Fugazi and they have made fun of it themselves. I'm sure people remember the part of instrument where, you know, they're telling a story about somebody who thought they, you know, lived together in a house without heat and like just these ridiculous rumors, uh, that are blown out of proportion to the facts of the matter. Uh, so, (laughs) so yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that, like resonate with this a little bit about uh fugazi as a band i don't get the sense that um the famous you know straight edge um abstaining from alcohol uh of Ian Mackay and company or or you know his veganism uh i i don't get the sense that that stems from any kind of asceticism i I think it's sort of a a different it comes from a different place than that and just he's not interested in. Um, doing those things, and it's more of a of a moral choice, at least for the veganism, rather than a self denial kind of choice.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense, and I think th- you know I'm not the first one to observe this, but I th- it's been written elsewhere that there is something, not necessarily about uh, Ian Mackay in particular, but just about that scene, and maybe Straight Edge was a part of that was that although it wasn't religious in the sort of official sense, capital R, or capital S spiritual, there was a certain religiosity to the way a lot of the folks in this scene behaved, thought, and acted right, whether it comes to, again, um, abstaining from certain types of food and drink, right, which, as you pointed out, has a tradition in Judeo-Christian religiosity, and I mean, all all over the world, too. There's some of that element there, Within this punk scene, which is interesting, which would make a song like this, which sort of draws attention to that um, a proper and improper diet, um, it makes it not just a political thing, or not just a, you know, I guess, a, a thing about corporations or something, but um, something which can you know be a bit transcendent in a way, right? Um, and that's a good that's a good angle.
0: Yeah, there there are some other words in this song like um, your your programmatic mind. Which mm-hmm. suggests it's sort of like a a religious um, <laughs> devotion, almost to uh, to self denial that is um, that is perhaps the opposite of of self reflection and really thinking about why you're doing something rather than just uh, you know having this uh, idea and who knows where it comes from that that you should be doing this. Yeah, um,
1: that. I'm sorry to interrupt that uh that line you read from Guy that quote is very it's very illuminating and that again has me thinking about this differently too but what struck me what strikes me about this as well is the the bismuth pink on tap line right that's the the bismol like it's on tap because you're drinking it all the time right and so why would you be doing that and you know because you're nauseous right and so that that's why I wanted to go in a different direction in part because I wasn't sure if it was so much a a choice to be an ascetic or to not eat so much as what's being offered to me again in terms of policy or in terms of uh, the options on the radio or otherwise by corporations like it makes me sick right that's very true yeah uh, yeah is what I is what I thought he was getting at in a way Um, and so I mean, that, I mean, the Pepto-Bismol reference uh, sort of is what drew me to the fact that this is a, a criticism of some other person's uh, choices or some other institution's uh, operations or something.
0: Right. And, um, and, well, hmm. yeah, so if it is a, if it is a criticism of that, I wonder where the the mantra comes in, which is derail the train. Yeah. Did did that factor into your um, interpretation?
1: With the initial one, it did, and uh, so again, I'm I'm trying to imagine when I hear the song, I'm imagining, um, say again, it's it's the '90s, um, a a democratic uh, advocate. I mean, for the the party, right, uh, and who voted for Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, and is interested at the policy level in getting these things accomplished. Um, and is seeing these things that are being passed uh, the pieces of legislation that are actually very problematic for the left um for you know people of color for you know the welfare reform what did that do for example that just threw a bunch of people off medicaid right so we had more uninsured people as a result etc and these things are very um and, and so you've got someone who's in my head, they're they're saying this mantra and in, in a programmatic way in defense of a particular administration or a political party when it's actually very very bad, um, you know, for for the people who are the most vulnerable, right? And um, yeah. so they have this mantra: derail the train, derail the train. And Guy's like, dude, you're derailing the train like for these these other people, the working class or whatever. Um, but again um i guess it depends on who the you is who is the yeah. you who is the we and all that sort of thing i
0: i i like examining the song through this framework do you think uh, according to this reading are the snakes like uh conservatives
1: or oh, just or capitalism i mean it's it's the it's capital itself which <laughs> e- eats itself right yeah. uh and, and and us along the way so
0: by the way, I wanted to make a just a public service announcement to our listeners. So this thing about snakes ingesting 40 times their body weight. Now, right. I did some research on this. I found mention somewhere of a type of viper that ate a lizard 1.6 times its body weight, uh, but I couldn't find an authoritative source on that. Other than that, um, the, the highest number I found is the Conservancy of Southwest Florida, found a burmese python that had swallowed a deer 1.1 times its body weight uh, quote wow. this is believed to be the largest prey to predator ratio ever documented for the burmese python and possibly for any species of python end quote so it seems to be physically impossible for snakes to ingest more than that simply based on how wide their mouths can stretch so this is mm-hmm. all to say that look fugazi songs should not be construed as actual pet advice if you own a snake do not listen to this feeding advice and uh, do not actually throw down your bulldog if you have one of those.
1: <laughs> so, Or, yeah, there you go. Or, and don't get a form of grill either. <laughs> It'll burn the hell out of your hand. Right.
0: So. so that that was just a little bit of a tangent. But, um, yeah, I do like how thinking in, in the reading of this that, uh, you know, it's comparing the, the you of this poem to the the snakes which i mean if we're reading this from a classical perspective uh, are are a negative representation of something yeah. so y- yeah. you would imagine that it would be framed uh, that way from a uh, political reading
1: well, so that it's a good point. I mean, the, the fact check is, I think, is is important. Uh, and whether it's 40 times body weight or, or 1.6 times the body weight, I think maybe uh, Guy's point is the same, such that, again, whether the snake is reactionary is on the right or otherwise, you've got this uh, this institution or this system, whether it's neoliberal capitalism, whatever, that sort of just continues to consume, whereas there's the, the, the subject in question of the song who refuses to eat or is like almost making a performance out of being emaciated while everything just gets destroyed by this monster, right? Um, right. And so at what point Guy is saying, like, you got to just, you got to stop performing your leftism or something and like <laughs> get this, get it done, right? Or yeah. a t- a fight back or something. But-
0: um, in ter- in, speaking of who the you is in this song, I mean, I always ha- sort of had the idea that it was Guy himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's... It seems like a song that's easy for me to read as, yeah, just just uh, <clears throat> meditating on on who the speaker is and and like a little bit of self critique. Um, I was wondering why maybe one of the lines uh, specifically, um, you crash your shit all over the place. Like, that Mm -hmm. just reminds me of Guy's stage presence in Fugazi, (laughs) just like going crazy and crashing into everything at performances. (laughs) So I guess just subconsciously, I kind of always thought Guy was talking to himself there.
1: Yeah, that could be too. And I'm looking at the first line too. So we've got the down at the station, we question our rations, but you're satisfied, right? And I don't know if the you there is the you who crashes the shit all over the place, but you have that. Sort of that instant uh, antagonism between who we are and who we who are dissatisfied with the food we've been given, again, maybe it's the far left or whatever, and then the you who's somehow satisfied with this garbage that you've been fed um and then that you goes on to crash the shit all over the place or or whatever crash your appetite that's a good point and working working on the mantra uh, even though not not getting anything accomplished um and so I feel like there's i it, it seems like again. This is if you don't want to go to, if you want to go in a different direction that's totally cool <laughs> with me. But I I see this I see this song as um, a conversation amongst people on the left, right, and the debates that we've all been maybe a part of about tactics and strategy and what we should be satisfied with coming out of Washington D.C. or our state uh, legislatures and what we should continue to continue to fight against um, and demand more, right? And I'm, again, I'm saying all this coming off of an election too, where we elected. You know, a Democrat, Joe Biden, who comes out of that sort of third way uh, Clinton era. And uh, I'm like, you know, there's the Bernie people are like $15 minimum wage, Green New Deal, Medicare for all. But is there really any any chance of that kind of stuff uh, happening? Uh, And it's very unlikely. And the progressives, I think, are in Gee's position in this song right now saying, guys, you can't be satisfied with what you're likely to get, we gotta to continue to push, or or you're gonna get eaten up by the snake.
0: I think there's, I think that's a very smart take. Um, and side note, I just wanted to say I love the way that Gee pronounces rations to rhyme with station. It's very cheeky.
1: <laughs> it is. It's great. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like it, it uh, gestures back to the old. Uh, I I am an anarchist, right? From the uh, Sex Pistols. <laughs>
0: there's a lot to chew on there, um, that, that reading. Uh,
1: that you're pun meaning. intended, yeah, I assume. Yeah. <laughs>
0: a lot to chew on indeed. As far as simple asceticism, are have you ever engaged in that sort of thing, uh, Brian? Um or I, I don't know about any of your personal habits, mm-hmm. but uh you know, so many people um, you know, in the Christian tradition give up something for Lent. A lot of yeah. people do uh say like I'm gonna do a month without drinking um, it's, it, there are these various self-improvement projects. Um, are you, are you the type to do a thing like that?
1: Uh, well, I, not anymore. I used to be, so I was, uh, you know, TMI, I was, I was raised, uh, Roman Catholic up here in North Dakota and it's, so being, it's kind of strange. So this will turn into my own therapy session, right? So being a punk rocker, a firstborn son and a Roman Catholic in this sort of highly Scandinavian German place, Uh, leads one to feel very, very inadequate and guilty like all the time, right? Or feeling as if you're just not good enough um, and you need to work harder or eat less or, um, you know, prove yourself in one way or another. And that did manifest itself in, um, you know, me trying to um, have these different, uh, I guess nothing religious necessarily, but, um, it led me to have a a disciplinary mindset of myself and what I would eat and what I would not eat, how much money I would spend and how much I wouldn't and uh, who, you know, how I would behave in certain company. Um, and that stuck with me. Yes. And I mean, I did as a kid, I would give up stuff for Lent. I don't do that anymore. Uh, certainly I was vegetarian for a while, um, and had to give that up as well. Again, it just wasn't, I don't, kind of to the point of the song, I don't think it was good for me in the end. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so this, this place that I'm, that I'm speaking from North Dakota coupled with uh, being straight edge, right. And all that kind of stuff did lead me to sort of uh, behave in, in the ways described in the song for a while. Um, now that I'm older and I'm, I did not feel it was especially productive, uh, in the end. So I don't do that stuff anymore, but, um, I, I see the value in it and I'm not certainly, uh, disparaging anyone who makes those choices, but, um, but yeah, to answer your question briefly, I did do this at one point.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I myself have never really been the type. I was actually also raised Catholic, although I've never um, been that observant of one. Um, sure. You know, even even when I was pretty young, um, and um, yeah, I mean, I didn't when I was in high school. I I didn't drink or anything. But then again, you're not supposed to drink in high school, so right. <laughs> Another uh, public
1: service announcement. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever been the, the type to, um, uh, aside from a just sort of scrupulous, uh, general sense of common sense thrift. I don't think I've ever been the sort of self-denial type. I've never done cleanses or anything like that or fasts really. Um, but uh I, I, I do remember at a pretty young age the book Siddhartha making a large impression on me, which is maybe sure. why I immediately made the association with uh with Buddhism in this song but also that's a that's a book where our main character, I'm sure most people have read it um uh does the asceticism thing for a while um and you know eventually discovers as you said it's it's not good for him uh it's It's not the way. To enlightenment or, or whatever, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but neither is the other extreme, and he uh, eventually finds this sort of a, a middle path that is um, that you know makes makes sense for him and and leads to a, a type of enlightenment. Um, yeah. So maybe that plays a role also in in my personal uh, journey through this sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that could be and so <clears throat> connected to that too. I was um again the Roman Catholic thing uh, even if I've sort of moved away from that as an adult it obviously has uh, an influence on the way I I thought and you know, about the world growing up and all that in in good and problematic ways. But I studied religion in college as well and so uh, literary theory and criticism and so on. And I was very interested in in uh, especially um zen buddhism and all that kind of stuff that that Gee seems to have um you know grasped onto in some ways at one point in his life as well um and i do think there's um you know a lot of that influenced my my habits in terms of eating and drinking and all that stuff too and so i mean to this day again better or worse i'm a pretty thin dude um you know for and who's pretty tall so for my height i'm i'm underweight um and i, I i'm working hard to to get past that though <laughs> So. Yeah, I've always been pretty
0: thin myself, and of course, I mean, so is Ghee. <laughs> he's like Yep. Uh, he's always out there uh on stage with his shirt off, looking real skinny. Um so yeah, that's I think that also enters into why this this could be sort of a self criticism uh kind of a song.
1: Well isn't there this is way off topic now, but isn't there <laughs> Uh, literature on the sort of uh, what happens to your brain, right, when you start to do that fasting sort of thing. I mean, it can lead to different sort of states of consciousness, which, which can be very enlightening in a variety of ways if you're if you're disciplined with it and practice it, uh, religiously, pun intended, or regularly, um, which I've never done. But
0: yeah, this is this is something I neglected to look into the, the scientific research around states of mind <laughs> and and fasting. Um,
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, not, not very well prepared, Ian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Damn Just it. Kidding. I've, I Again, I have failed. Um, listeners, there's some homework for you. Um, there you go. What what does the literature say? Um, well, uh, to move on a little bit, you know, I, I couldn't find much in the way of live versions of this song. Um, I did find one interesting cover online that you can see. It's uh, this band called Ice Ice comma C comma dead people ice C dead people <laughs> from London they uh, apparently they played a Halloween show as a Fugazi tribute band and, and did this song um, sure which I'd you know tip of the hat like I think a lot of people if they uh, decided to do a Fugazi tribute band act they might not it might not occur to them to pick Guilford Fall um, so that's pretty cool um, uh, well what do you say we talk about ratings <laughs> As you know, sure. if you've heard this so- this uh, podcast, we like to rate every Fugazi song on a scale of one to five stars, but only in the context of Fugazi songs uh, mm-hmm. as a whole.
1: So, uh, how do you think this stacks up, um, Guilford Fall? One to five stars. Man, so <clears throat> I do listen to your, to your show. I uh, appreciate it very much, and I struggle with this every time for every song because again, so many of them it's it 's context based right whether I think a song at that particular listening is a four or five or a one is sort of is hinges upon am I listening to it you know with my friends is it live? is it in the context of the album or as a standalone video from youtube i don 't I mean it 's different um so it 's kind of throwing that all out the window, which is me being lazy saying i don 't know. The real answer is, I don't know. I I want to give this a three and a half to a four. Hmm.
0: Yeah. That that makes sense to me. I I think that I was going to say three. Um, Yeah, I I struggle with it too. And I struggle with a lot of the songs on, I think, end hits in particular that way. Um, I was just thinking that this earlier in Fugazi's career, if they had, you know, before they got really good at recording... This might be a song that I just sort of didn't like that much, um, but everything, especially like on end hits and the argument, just sounds so good. It's recorded uh, so competently compared to some of their earliest stuff that, that it's like it's hard to not like it. It's like there's there's always interesting stuff. Um, so yeah, get given that it's 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 a little bit middle of the road for me not one of their towering achievements but um it's a pretty cool sound so i guess i'll i'll go with three
1: well let me let me revise mine to just a bit and say i mean i'll settle on a number so i'll say 3.75 if if we can do decimals (laughs) um and and the reason for that is i think kind of connected to what i was saying my friend had, had said earlier is in some ways this is almost technically speaking um into that angle of uh, production recording and engineering it's just it's so good uh that in some ways the the crispness and the cleanness of it almost gets in the way of the emotional timbre of the song right and so for my money for what it's worth uh i think red medicine's their best record sort of my favorite record and it goes back to the way those guitars and drums sound right like the snare drum on uh, long distance runner is just like no one's ever done it better that I've ever heard, and that, like this song, Guilford Fall, and maybe the most of the end hits, it's kind of missing that sort of snare, and I don't, I don't know what it is, I don't know what they did differently, but it's um, that sort of just holds it back a bit for me.
0: To throw it to a review from our fans on social media, the uh, alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page. Um, this was kind of last minute; I didn't give people a lot of time to chime in, so I just got one from Carl Goldspink, who says. Always feel they never quite got this one to fill its potential. Love the descending chiming riff just before the end riff, but generally think it's better in its instrumental version. I certainly can't disagree with that strongly. I think, yeah, gun to my head, maybe I'd say the same. Maybe I like the demo version a little better. It certainly serves well as uh, a part of a film soundtrack. That's for sure, and I, I do like how, uh, in the film, it's you know it's playing over footage of. Uh, much earlier a much younger Fugazi but something about it seems to fit really perfectly it, it, it's a neat trick that they pulled off um, selecting some of these songs for the soundtrack and, and making them work really well
1: yeah no i agree i think that uh, that sort of uh, that use of the song the demo version in the soundtrack for instrument sort of is in my mind too it's hard for me not to hear even the end hits version of the song without seeing the the visuals and that performance from the the documentary film um and that sort of again boosts it a bit in my a bit in my head because i'm i'm, I'm a big fan of that film in general obviously but also that sequence i think it's good
0: yeah right on well uh let me allow you to do some plugs Never- So where can listeners reach you? Do you want to tell us how we can uh, read your book and anything else
1: like that? Sure, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so yeah, the uh, the book title again is the year's work in the punk bookshelf. Uh, we just just I prefer lusty scripts, um, and as you said, in this case it's s c r i p t s, like a script. And that was again for copyright reasons. We were talking off air, weren't we? About uh, you know how you kind of sign your soul away when you work with a, a major publisher or record producer or something, and they they don't let you do the titles the way you you want to do them. Um, but the book is lusty scripts. Um, but if you go Go to bookshelf dot uh, I think it's com or maybe it's org. I'll, I'll confirm that for you. Um, you can access the book, or it's just at Indiana University Press. You know, uh, I tip my hat to them. And um, what else? I do a podcast of my own. It's called with a friend. Uh, it's called Living in the End Times, and it's, it's very uplifting. And we just talk <laughs> about you know politics and climate change and policy and what's going on uh, and all that and other plugs. That's about it. Cool.
0: Well, whatever that address is, I will put it in the show notes so listeners can just go down there and give it a click, and uh, that will be your answer. Uh, So thanks again, Brian Schill. Great conversation. Great talking with you. I don't have any plugs other than if you could uh, tell a friend about the show, a friend who likes Fugazi preferably. I don't think telling anybody else about the show would do much good. But uh, yeah. Uh, spread the word a little um, you can also reach me as always at fugazi a to z at gmail.com you can join that facebook group i was talking about just called the alphabetical fugazi and uh yeah share in the conversation and maybe you'll have some interesting takes on songs that that i will not have thought of so your contributions will be welcome so i hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing hello morning until then keep your eyes open
1: So this is back around when uh, The Argument uh, came out, I want to say it was, it was 2001, right? And Fugazi was doing a bit of a tour um, in support of that record. They played in Fargo, North Dakota, I went to see them the night before, but then the following night they were up in Winnipeg, uh, Canada, and I had, my wife and I were going to go see that show, I would reserved tickets which were being sold through a, a record store up in Winnipeg. Um, and so, you know, went down to Fargo the night before Fargo, North Dakota, which is about seventy miles to the south of where I'm at, um, right along the North Dakota Minnesota uh, border. And we were driving back up, and we actually passed, uh, you know, the Penske truck and Fugazi on the road heading north uh, on our way up. Kind of waved at Joe in the in the window and so on, as he was driving. Um, but we went up to Winnipeg then the next day, uh, and. Um, it was my birthday, as a matter of fact, and that's an important bit of uh, context, so we got to the record store to pick up our tickets for this show, which was going to be held in at some arena in the St. Boniface, uh, the French Quarter, effectively, of Winnipeg, if you've never been there, Canada, and uh, the record store was closed, and there was a sign on the door saying, sorry, closed, you know indefinitely because the owner and maybe i think his partner or something owners uh had died in a some sort of automobile or uh, motorcycle accident right and so we're thinking oh that's that's horrible number one but also number two did we just drive three hours you know for nothing because we don't have tickets to this show uh the sign on the door said well you can go get your tickets though for the fugazi show if that's why you're here at this uh this cafe uh, in the, you know, the Italian quarter of, of, of Winnipeg. We're like, all right. So we went to the address, tried to find this coffee shop. We went in there, explained uh, to the 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 employees working there, the barista, the situation, and they looked kind of confused, but they went to look in the back for these tickets. And it came up kind of, you know, with their arms in their air, like, ah, uh, they, they couldn't find anything. They didn't have any tickets with our name on it or any tickets, period. And we thought, okay, still don't have tickets. Um, what do we do? Uh, my wife and I decided we drove all this way. Uh, it's summertime, and I didn't have air conditioning in the car at the time. It was very hot. Didn't want to go back that night uh you know, at least not yet. And so we went to, we thought, well, let's just go to the show and try to plead our case and see if, they, if the band will let us in or if the, the, the promoter or whomever. Um, so we went to the, the auditorium where the show was being held and waited in line with a bunch of really sweet very genuine um polite uh canadian uh punkers and it was, it was a lot of fun just hanging out talking to those kids but uh, we got to the front and we explained the situation to the woman who was taking tickets at the door we said like oh, we don't have them and here's why here's my driver's license we're from north dakota just came up today across the border tickets were supposed to be at the record store it's closed etc and she just kind of you know looked skeptical, but took my driver's license and just, and I gave it to somebody else. And this other person walked away. Another woman went, uh, went, you know, behind the scenes or something. And we stood there thinking, this is it. We're not, you know, they're going to send us home. That's but it was worth a try. Right. Um, You know, a few minutes later, uh, this woman who had taken my driver's license comes back and she's with Ian McKay. Right. And so she's she's talking. She seems to be explaining the situation to him about, you know, eight feet from where we were standing. We were off to the side as the other kids were being let into the show or other other um, other persons, other members of the audience, not just kids. And so Ian was, you know, he'd look over at us, he'd look at the ground, he'd kind of nod his head a bit. He'd look up at us again, look at the woman he was speaking with. Um, And, you know, a minute later, he just kind of looks at the driver's license, takes it, he just hands it back to me and says, happy birthday. And then goes back inside, and that was it. And they let us into the show. And the reason I, I'm interested in telling that anecdote is because it sort of speaks to the character of not just Ian but the band, and sort of the aesthetic and the uh, the ethic that they've tried to cultivate for a very long time. And that's you know that's that's what you do to people who are dedicated to your art, right, and who are interested in um, in your music and want to be uh, a part of that experience. And it was it was a really great experience. And it was I think you know. Uh, something i'll obviously never forget and try to retell the story as often as i as i can as a as an example of just what what, how important that group has been to so many fans and to me in particular and just what they what they did for i guess the arts and punk rock and, and music in the united states and around the world for many 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 years and i and i think that's a good example